Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it is time now for Tuesday Home Time with Joan Bartlett. And as I say, I'll be here until 6 this evening. Today I'll be speaking with a Western Sahara journalist facing a long jail sentence for exposing Moroccan human rights abuses in Western Sahara. And that's Nasser al Khalidi. Peter Murphy is back from Hong Kong. His impressions of the protest movements there and his participation in conferences on human rights. Nick McClellan, journalist and researcher with a preview of the Pacific Islands Forum. Bishop George Browning, the president of APAN, Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network, assessing the two-day Bahrain workshop, which has been labelled a charade. And Cathy Kelly from Voices for Creative Nonviolence, also assessing, and this time, the impact of economic war on citizens in the Middle East. But first, Mr Kevin Healy. A week, Jane Lister, when we were privileged to see the greatest and most heroic moment in human history as U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world, Big Supremo Donald Trump of the poor, modestly proclaimed the fact that he had taken a step across the evil but sometimes good North Korean border and shaken hands time and again for the cameras with the bloke with the funny haircut. Not sure Donald put it in an actual sentence. Well, well yes, we can be sure he didn't. The only sentence he knows is sentencing evil, evil Iran to economic strangulation, but Donald said in his own way, this was the greatest and most heroic moment in human history, and given we can't be absolutely sure that dear baby Jesus ever existed, he may be right. And what next, Donald? We'll see. Greatest moment ever. Although almost immediately this morning's Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin may have already outscooped Donald in the greatest moments, or more correctly, momentous events shaping the history of the human race, as it revealed as its P3 big, big story with big, big pickies to prove it, that two women wore almost identical dresses to television's big night, the loonies. Imagine their embarrassment, their anger at the haute couture designer who allowed this to happen. As the big, big issues go, Donald bleed, but while on Donald, as yet another woman claims he sexually assaulted her, he rebutted her claim by declaring, she's not my type. So obviously Donald only assaults women who are his type. Mentioned last week, new caring business class relations minister Christian Potom declared he wants to deregister the evil construction unions and introduce a bill to allow union bosses to be sacked and unions deregistered. But this week, Christian said he would take a conservative approach to industrial reform, leaving us to ponder what he might consider radical. And he would consult with the parties before making the conservative changes. Uh, So you'll consult with the unions. Let me rephrase that. All relevant parties. 
He's big Supremo Scuttlebem Morlachthon says caring business class relations reform is critical to getting the economy back on its feet. Having told us during the election it was on its uh, on its feet, but let's ignore that and rebut silly suggestions that he does not have a mandate to bring in a few sensible, necessary controls on the out of control evil unions and lazy avaricious workers by pointing out the defeated socialists plan to give the evil unions even more out of control powers which the people rejected thereby giving him a mandate to do what he likes sort of reverse mandate and controlling evil unions is something Scuttlebem and Christian like very much Christian is not only the Minister for Caring Business Class Relations, he is also the Attorney General and switching to that hat, he continued his relentless struggle to make True Blue Aussie a better place by commenting on the Uluru Statement, seeking constitutional recognition, treaty and Indigenous advisory body and generally recognising we invaders haven't treated the people who own the country all that well. Well, Christian was forced to admit with logic right up there with Scuttlebem's reverse mandate argument that a response by the caring business class team to the Uluru statement was miles away because the wording of the statement was not in legislative legalese, bloody ignorant indigenous people. And apparently it will take years, miles away, for the government's legislative draft lot to get the work, the wording right, leaving us to ponder how come they can whip up a, a bill in ultra short time when it's stuff they want to get through. Not that we would have any doubts about Christians' intentions or non-intentions. Bit of a furor over former Minister for Offence, Train Killing and Slaughter Christopher Payton's appointment as an offensive train killer slaughter advisor to one of the world's big four accounting for everything firms. Some spoil sports claiming he is breaking the ex-minister's code, but Christopher has put them in their place. I know my responsibilities under the code and I will abide by them. Perhaps someone should point out to Christopher that his prime responsibility under the code is not to accept the job in the first place. Although given how these lots don't appreciate a bit of adverse publicity, bit of potential bad news for pain in there, because the EY bother Big Brass met at the weekend to discuss the controversy, including maybe withdrawing the offer. See, they appreciate the code as does the Minister for Keeping Us Secure and Overseeing Concentration Camps, Razor Wire and Sink the Boats, Constable Peter Duffer, whose eligibility to be in Parliament has been questioned because of an interest in a childcare centre which receives government handouts. Good news. Peter's resolved the problem by renouncing his interest in the family trust at the heart of the issue. Interesting that, because the eligibility question relates to whether or not you are eligible when you nominated for the seat. So the government seems to be forgetting that little bit of the legislation, but then it's got more important things on its hands than whether a minister for Pete, a minister like Pete, is eligible or not. He's resigned to his fate, so to speak. So meanwhile, as crossbenchers do deals to get totally unrelated matters attached to the slash taxes for the filthy rich bill, and 
scuttled them and economic giant Matthias Rotten to the demand the socialists respect their mandate, the socialists are yet again displaying the courage of their non-convictions which has dominated their post-election behaviour. With all the experts who know about these things and know just how critical for the economy are tax cuts for the filthy rich, declaring the socialists will lose credibility in the community if they do not support the cuts. And true to form, the socialists figure they can shore up their working class credentials by agreeing the filthy rich desperately need a tax cut. On which the Grattan Institute, hardly an evil commie hotbed, claimed this week that the tax cuts would mean the filthy rich would be paying less in tax as a percentage than they now do, and the tax system would be the least progressive it has been since the 1950s. Well, good, that proves it will work. While still in Canberra, there's this block of land close to Parliament House, the home of parliamentary democracy, which has been left vacant under local law because it's home to the endangered golden sun moth. Good news for the economy. This week, the government flogged it to a couple of developers who planned 40,000 square metres of office space, although they may include a hotel, and the developer said, we are excited to deliver a quality project in one of Canberra's most important precincts. What an exciting boon to the economy. Oh, and the golden sun moth? Selfish little thing standing against progress, standing or more particularly flying between a developer and a bag of money? Well, all's well. The government got environmental approval to offset the loss of the habitat to government-owned land on the outskirts of the city, so presumably they'll put signs up between the construction equipment with an arrow saying, Golden Sun Moth, this way. Hope the moths learn to read quickly because they only live for a few days. On our dedication to living with other species, Sea Japan, according to the report I read, has resumed commercial whaling after 31 years. And we suppose that's technically correct, although nothing's changed. It's just been called scientific research for the past 31 years. Back to Christopher's important new but maybe thwarted role advising EY not on making a financial killing out of killing out of the merchants of death, always good to get a balanced, unbiased view on the business of train killing and slaughter from our favourite commentator on train killing and slaughter, Jim Morlam, former big train killer and Iraq invader turned senator, although that's about to end unless he gets Arthur's sins of Dunnas's vacancy. Jim just loves a bit of war and this week wisely informed us true blue Aussie direct quote has an obligation and the capability to join the US of in an invasion of evil Iran and Jim's advice on these things is always invaluable we should have a competition to see if there's any train killer scenario in which Jim would suggest we shouldn't go and kill the other asterisk as long as it's us invading them Back on the Great Invader, that debate last week between the potential Democrat candidates in the US of, they attacked Donald, the greatest ever, and his lot for existing only for the rich. Now that's something we've never noticed from the sundry Democrat big supremos. Inferior, inferior big supremos. Worst ever, worst ever. 
Oh, and finally, having begun with Donald's modest assessment of his North Korean greatest moment in history footprint, part of the greatest big supremo term ever, ever, this week he attacked the Iranian big supremo for being, hang on, hang on, for being selfish, egotistical, and only thinking of himself and not the people, presumably for not resigning and allowing the US of to appoint his successor. They've never forgiven them for throwing out the Shah. And I can't forgive Donald, greatest ever that he is, for stuffing up satire. Good afternoon. Mr Kevin Healy. Last Tuesday, Nazir al-Khalidi was in court, the court of the first incident in Alayon, Western Sahara, facing a charge that she claimed to be associated with a profession, i.e. journalism, that is regulated by law, without meeting the necessary conditions to use it, pursuant to Article 381 of the Moroccan Penal Code. This court appearance had previously been delayed twice, once in March and then in May. Kate Lewis from the Australian Western Sahara Association and myself phoned Nazia at her home last Wednesday. Kate began by talking about the recent drowning off the coast of Western Sahara of young people. The young people are um, very frustrated in general and occupied Western Sahara. You know, uh, when you live in a place where you only dream, you have no uh, future, and you are pretty sure that you are are not going to have any good life in your place, then you will decide just to flee from this reality and this is what happened to these young people who were together with their families in Western Sahara but then they just decide to cross illegally to flee to Europe trying to get uh, opportunities to work and to survive. Was there a problem with the boat that they used? Yeah, this is something very organized and we don't know who is behind this kind of immigrations, because this is not the first time where we we, lo- we lose like young people, like these people who died. Uh, there were a lot of times young people died in this kind of way. Uh, there were a lot of people. We are talking about dozens of people from Morocco occupied Western Sahara. People are just uh, trying to immigrate and flee. Especially when this conflict is continued for uh, more than four decades. If you're now trying to view or meet people or ask them what they want and what they want from this life, they just will tell you that we are tired from it and, and we just want to go to Europe, which is like a, a, a place dream yes. for many of them in the occupied territory and in refugee camp. Now, Naza, I'd like to introduce you to Jan, Jan Bartlett, who is a radio journalist working at our community radio station called Radio 3CR, and she would like to talk to you about your trial and the problems that you've been having with the Moroccan authorities. So here's Jan. Good morning. How are you? Uh, well, that's good. Can I ask you about the day you had your day in court? 
What was it like when you arrived at the court? Who was there to greet you? I went to the court because I've been accused for um, claiming that I'm a journalist and uh, Morocco is like uh, considered journalism as a profession which is regulated by uh, Morocco law but uh, I don't have authorization to exercise this profession as they said I don't have the right or authorization to do journalism in Western Sahara since Morocco is considered Western Sahara as part of uh, his um, territory. So I've been accused with this accusation and I've been called to be presented to the court. Uh, it was the third third uh, session. The first one was in March, 18th of March. The second one was in 20th of May, but it was postponed in the two times. So, um, yes, on the last one, uh, it was a discussion. I got the chance to speak up. I got the chance to defend myself. My lawyer also were defending me, and we were explaining that journalism has never been uh, like a profession that a person, if wants to practice, need to have authorization or need to have a graduated to do it. Any person can do journalism since she or he trying to make the violations against human rights visible to the world. And this is what we do and this is what I do as a journalist belong to Equip Media, which is a group of journalists who are trying to expose the Moroccan violations against Sahari people and who is the only alternative for the world since Western Sahara is suffering from a media blockade and it's closed on front of all the press agencies and the human, international human rights organizations. And as you see, no international observers are allowed to enter uh, to the territory. Who was in the court supporting you? Yeah, the, uh, my family were there. Not all the members of uh, my family were allowed to be in the, the courtroom. But yeah, there were some people who managed to enter but yeah, there, there was also my lawyer, who is a Sahrawi, and voluntarily uh, decided to defend me. His name is Lili Mohammed Fadal, and um, I was also there defending myself. So I got the chance. I was lucky mm. because I got some uh, minutes to speak up and uh, to raise also my, my opinion. And there were people who were coming from other countries to show support for you. They weren't allowed even to get past the airport, is that correct? Yes, there were three Spanish lawyers who are uh, accredited by uh, uh, the Spanish Council, the Bar Spanish Council, to come in and to attend my trial since uh, it was a public but unfortunately they were expelled and sent back to their country. Uh, so they came from Gran Canaria to Layun, but unfortunately 
the authority, Moroccan authorities, sent them back with the next plan to Gran Canaria when just they arrived to Layoun and they're saying that they want to attend the trial. And they were not the only ones who were expelled, but also there were two observers from uh, the Bar Association the American Bar Association who were also trying to attend the trial and came in under the name of an organization which is usually send the lawyers to attend this kind of trials but also they were expelled from Morocco and this is not the first time the last also trial there were seven observers who were not allowed to enter. What did your defense lawyers say in your defense? My, my lawyer was confirming what I said. He was studying with defending the international conventions, especially the Article 19 from CCPR, which uh, say that each person has the right to express freely and which Morocco agree on that conventions. So he was explaining that the Moroccan authorization, it's not condition that allow uh, journalists to work as a, uh, reporters on the human rights and that we have a lot of uh, experiences or a lot of examples of people who had authorizations from Morocco but they still facing harassment from the Moroccan government and he gave some examples from the Moroccan side like the Moroccan journalists Zef Zafi who are now sentenced between 10 years, 20 years uh, and they are Moroccans and they were allowed to be journalists but now they are in the prison when they criticize the Moroccan government and the Moroccan regime. It was like examples. Uh-huh. Were you at any time told what you might be facing as a, if you were found guilty? Actually, we, we were very strong and we had a very strong proof, me and my lawyer, inside the trial. But you can never uh, yes, expect any um, vindicate from what happens to the inside the station because we don't know what Morocco has in their intention and uh, everything is already ready so we me and lawyer we had discussed this and I asked him about what he think and he told me that we don't know because we cannot build our expectation on uh, what we see and what we hear inside the station um, and we don't know what uh, kind of like sentences I will get. So actually, I cannot say what Morocco is going to to do with this because they have it's, everything is policy. So they already decide uh, my verdict. They, I just I'm just I uh, have to wait. They probably have decided your verdict already, but. Uh, do you think that they will have been in any way influenced by the statements made by human rights organizations saying that all the charges against you should be dropped? Of course, if you see, the charge from the beginning came to intimidate me. Uh, if you see why I was from the beginning charged with this accusation, trying to criminalize 
my work and revenge on me uh, as a person who is against the occupation of Western Sahara and I'm saying it loudly and I participate a lot of time in um, peaceful protests uh, demanding my, my rights. If you see why all this happened from the beginning, why I was arrested, you will find that it's like no legitimate reason allowed them to give me this accusation. I was only filming like for four minutes and uh, speaking in a video which is public already and which is published already and it's still in the social media and you can see that it was a very normal video. Every person around the world can do this video and not face in the same that uh, I faced. But they just want to intimidate me. They just want to send a message to all uh, the members of Ikip Media uh, who I'm working with, with that, we, that they want to say that they have like an article on their law that allow them to put us in jail and to imprison us. So. The video was a very normal. It, it was like uh, four minutes uh, from speaking, and then uh, there were like more than four police cars with uh, dozens of uh, policemen, officers with a civilian uniform jumping uh, on my side and starting beating me, confiscating my phone by force, and then accused me. Of course, the pressure happens, and I think it can influence, but it will never, of course, protect me mm. uh, 100%. So Morocco wanted me to, to be silent, wanted me to not react, but I was lucky that there were a lot of organizations who were involved in this case. There were a lot of people who supported me, and this kind of support can of course, influence in, in some way. Yeah, I cannot say that it, it will protect me and to prevent me, like them from uh, from sentencing me, but it it can like impact on this. I hope it has some influence, but it hasn't stopped them wanting to do the same thing. I've seen in the news that Hayat Rigubi, if that's how her name should be said had the same problem. Her telephone was confiscated, I think. Is that right? Uh, yes, and we have... And, and we have we have a lot of cases. That not only Hayat Al-Gibi, yes, Hayat Al-Gibi, her phone was confiscated for like one hour, and they took also her information. They were harassed her because she did the same as I did. Uh, not only her, but there were a lot of uh, journalists who, who gave the same what I got, but um, not the same like uh, reaction from the international community. Unfortunately, that's why they can like take their own, their space, their free time to um, or like uh, more space to harass people uh, because they know that not all people can get the same. Uh, reaction from the world so they don't like lo lose hope to harass each person this is a yeah maybe they will avoid to harass me like directly in the streets because i have this like solidarity but of course they will not stop um, harassing other journalists but you must realize and everyone realizes that you are so important as a protector for the whole of the people of Western Sahara who are opposing 
the regime which is punishing them every time they speak out. <laughs> By getting the story uh, out. known to the rest of the world, yes. Otherwise we wouldn't know what was happening if we didn't have yeah, stories like yours. Of course. So you know that the basis of each journalism around the world is making all the violations against the human rights visible in front of the world. So we cannot say that journalism can, can do um, like a good work and journalists can do a good job without uh, exposing the human rights violations. So this is why we started journalism from the beginning as a volunteer put ourselves and the risks uh, we want to make all the violations against Sahara people in the occupied territory visible on, on front of the world, uh, especially that Morocco has occupied Western Sahara since, since 1975, uh, and it was like more than three decades. Nobody knows about the stories in the occupied territory of Western Sahara. There were a lot of people who have been killed in the prisons and out of the prisons by Morocco. There were a lot of people uh, who, have di- who have died and they're tortured. There were a lot of people who have been uh, lost their, fam- their members of their families and uh, nobody knows about what is happening exactly since Morocco is imposing a military and media blockade on the territory and there were a lot of crimes against humanities but uh, no international press uh, reports about this. That's why this group of uh, journalists which called Equip Media decided to start this work putting themselves under risk and danger um, trying to make more awareness about the conflict in general and about what we are facing and our reality. It's important, it will, as I said, it will help for, like, make the process of finding a solution uh, more fast, uh, but we cannot say that it, it protects, because before it protects, like, Sahara people, because before we start journalism, we are victims. We still victims. Uh, we still, like, facing the same what the whole people are facing. So even us, even like two persons from these people who are known by the world, who are known by international organizations, they are still can be in jail and can be in the prison. Uh, we have like our colleagues who were uh, doing the same work as we do, and now they are in jail sentenced between 20 years in the prison and 12 years and 30 years. And we have examples from uh, like members of Equipe Media who are now uh, sentences with these sentences. So uh, I cannot say that it can protect, but it can put the journalists in more risk in the more like, but it also can help for like um, uh, get and gain more support from outside, uh, which means that you can get like more voices. The civil society from the world can stand uh, beside us and this can, uh, this can also uh, influence on the political uh, level, can also bring like uh, some political pressure which also can help to solve this conflict. You must be encouraged by the number of organisations around the world who now know what is happening in Western Sahara and a lot of that is because of your work. Yeah, 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 yeah. We have a lot of examples in that. There were 
a lot of organizations who never like report about the conflict and we manage to reach them and to convince them to write about the conflict. For example, the last documentary that made by Equip Media, Three Stolen Camera, it was the first documentary which made by the people in occupied Western Sahara, some activists, like Sahara activists, not foreigners, and it reached international festivals and it's uh, it impact on the uh, like also political point of view of many countries for example Iraq which is Arabic country and with Morocco you know the position of Arabic country and Arabic government they are a lot like uh, all, all the time are supportive for Moroccan occupation and uh, we reached like Arabic festivals and Iraq had a diplomatic problem with Morocco when they screened the, the documentary so you can see how this kind of work can influence we managed to to, to get a lot of voices around the world through the work we do. We built a network, we get more support people uh, when they start knowing the conflict through the work we do, through our meeting, through doing like moving, through uh, send them or update, update them all the time about what is happening and the news they started to know more about this conflict and they found it very simple. I met a lot of people who just know about this conflict and they told me this conflict is very simple to solve. But the problem is that the world doesn't know a lot of things. Of course, the government knows, especially the governments who are involved in some way in this conflict, who are benefit, for example, from natural resources, but the people who can make change, the people in these countries who can make change and who can put more pressure on their government to change their position. So that's why journalism is important. Meeting foreigners is very important. Be close to, to the people is very important. Trying to publish in different languages, trying to... It is terrific. I think it's wonderful that you publish in four languages. It helps yeah. a lot to reach a very wide public. I saw that mm. the other day I was watching on... I followed a link and I saw a recording of a meeting in America, in California with Amy Goodman and I noticed that she had managed to get Mohammed Myra on a video call and he was able to participate in the seminar at Berkeley College in California and yeah. I think the, the more that we can do that kind of thing it will help. Yeah, of course. This is why we thought it would be good for, to, for us to hear you and we hope that you will not go to prison on the 8th of July but we thought we should take advantage of this period while you're here to uh, let you speak to our public here in Australia, in Melbourne. Thank you so much for um, talking with me and giving me this chance to speak and uh, to, to raise up the Sahrawi voice because we really need more support and we are trying, uh, you know, there are a lot of pressure. We are suffering from a lot of pressure. But we, when we start in like communicating and uh, uh, building relations with uh, people, we face more and more pressure since Morocco has been succeeding in spreading fake information, uh, huge propaganda 
for like dozens of years. So it's not easy to face this propaganda and to face what Morocco uh, policies is um, like uh, impact on the world. It's not easy. That's why it's very important to get the change, uh, chance and trying to exploit from any opportunity that we get to speak up and to resist the Sahrawi voice. Also, yes, as you say, the Mayara was presented in that conference through uh, Skype. I can say that technology, development technology helps us a lot in spreading information. Social platforms, social media help us a lot in spreading information like Facebook, Twitter, and also other applications like yeah, Signal and WhatsApp helped us a lot to update people and um, uh, spread the information. So it's very important to, to use it also in our, in our site. Huh? Finally, I'm not sure whether you're aware or not, but Kate and I have a radio program here on Community Radio, and once a month... Kate tells us the news from Western Sahara that comes out and also the support that Western Sahara are getting in different avenues throughout the world. And that's a monthly radio program. Fantastic. So you, you do like a radio program each, each month? That's right. Uh-huh. Fantastic. It's very important to have uh, this kind of programs, especially in the national media of the countries. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, like more useful, useful for the people there. It's very important and it's very helpful. And this is also support what we do. Thank you for that. We really appreciate it. And we need like more voices there. And uh, we will be happy to have people who uh, try also to, to come into the territory and meet uh, activists here. Because mm-hmm. Morocco, of course, we believe that he, he's going to do the same. He's going to expel more and more observers. But, yeah, it's good to provoke the Moroccan government mm-hmm. and to, to challenge, to go through this challenge and trying to break the media blockade and help uh, journalists here to, to break this I mean, I have put into my news about the number of people who have been sent back and expelled out of Morocco because my French friend, Michelle de Castaire, she keeps a note of all of this. And before those latest expulsions, there was 192, I think, since 2014, And Uh so now there will be over 200 people who have been refused entry or sent away from Morocco because they were too interested in what was happening among the Sahrawis. But uh, Uh we are very pleased to be able to talk with you and thank you very much for for joining us today and maybe another time we will be able to talk with you and, and let Equip Media yeah. explain what is happening. Fantastic. Thank <laughs> you so much. Good luck. And good luck, yes, Thank with the verdict. We will keep our fingers crossed, we say. <laughs> we hope, uh-huh. that, uh, hope that it will be a good sentence for you, good verdict. Thank you so much for having me. And that was the voice of Western Saharan journalist Naza El-Khalidi, Kate and I spoke with her by phone.
last Wednesday, the day after she'd spent a day in court fighting the charge of, well, basically not being a journalist. Well, they're not allowed to be a journalist, so there's a bit of a conflict there, but she is facing, if found guilty, a long jail sentence. And many thanks to Kate Lewis from the Australian Western Sahara Association for making that phone call possible. Now, the the video you can watch is called Three Stolen Cameras, and the one, another one is Rifles or Graffiti. Have a look on YouTube and also the Australian Western Sahara Association. Wondering how you pay your donation to the 3CR Radiothon? Well, you can do so online at www.3cr.org.au or call us with your credit card details on 0394198377. You can also come into the station at 21 Smith Street Fitzroy during office hours and pay by cash, cheque or FPOS. Or simply post your cheque or money order to P.O. Box 1277 Collingwood 3066 and be sure to tell us which program you'd like your donation to go to. Human rights and trade union activist Peter Murphy is just back from two conferences and they were held in Hong Kong. So my first question to him early this morning after a couple of hours sleep was, what did you find there when you were there, Peter? Well, I, I saw the images from yesterday's protests. You know, it was a bit uh, disconcerting, I, I guess, to see that uh, the people's movement is has got different parts in it that, that aren't sort of coherent. The smashing into the uh, Legislative Council building is one thing, and then there's a huge peaceful rally in another part of uh, the island. And I, I did get to talk to people in Hong Kong who, who are involved in the trade union movement and in uh, some of the uh, political groups. They really said that... I, th- I think that they, they feel that they've uh, won this struggle over the extradition bill. Uh, Carrie Lam, executive officer has really abandoned it. Her language is simply face-saving and that um, somehow the people aren't sure you know, of what they've achieved and that's why the demonstrations continue at the scale they are. Probably yesterday's numbers were a little, you know, significantly or measurably less than, than the, the previous one. Perhaps the thing will sort of just continue to reduce. However, you know, the violence is, is always... a, a, a I think, in my mind, a way for the government to, to get the upper hand in, in an argument with the people about who acts properly. I don't think the story's over at all uh, in regard to the, the movement at this stage. You were there for an international meeting. A meeting of who? OK, there were two events, one after the other. The first was called the International League of People's Struggles and it was its sixth international gathering set up in 2001 and the second one was the International Coalition for Human Rights in the Philippines which was formed in 2013. It was its third General Assembly. So I've got a particular role in uh, in the second one in the International Coalition. I've been the chairperson of the whole thing for the last three years and, uh, and it looks like I'm going to continue in that role for a little while yet. 
it's a, it was far more focused, of course, uh, on the Philippines than than the first one. And I think uh, you know, the, the International League is really a collection, an association of organisations which promote democracy and oppose imperial domination, occupations and uh, wars of aggression and so on. It's very broad in its um, scope and I concentrated there on the trade union work and, and the more general political economy of, of development work. I think uh, both of them were very big successes uh, in their own terms and um, sense that the world is going through a very deep crisis there among all the participants and uh, the sense that uh, you know, we urgently need to get our act together to create a very much uh, alternative, positive alternatives for people in the environment was, was very strong. People left uh, the, first, the first assembly very energised and um, with the one on the Philippines, the sense of, of danger and very high drama was, was gripping us. As I said, it's the third assembly of that group. When we were winding it up, the Philippines uh, person, his name is uh, uh, Renato Reyes, and he's the leader of their new patriotic alliance of the Philippines, Bayan. His whole message was just to say um, how important the international people were to them at this, at this time. It was an unusual speech in my mind because I'm used to Filipino leaders spelling out an analysis and being, you know, uh, very um, agitational and so on. But he was really just saying, we thank you from the bottom of our hearts for being here with us. What can international people do in, in the situation that is the Philippines today? Actually, there's a huge amount happening, Jan. I take heart from the fact that you know, we've, been, we've been working on this, of course, for so long because the situation's been bad for so long. But with Duterte, it's, it's actually far worse. Just before we met, the International Labour Organisation held um, its centenary assembly. The KMU Union Centre in the Philippines had lodged a complaint uh, with the ILO about the repression that they were suffering. Oh, I should go back one step. But the, uh, the Philippines uh, government did not include the KMU in, the, in its delegation to the ILO assembly. But even those ra- rather more moderate unions from the Philippines who were there, they supported the complaint. The International Trade Union Confederation, which has got an Australian, Sharon Burrow as the General Secretary, they endorsed it and many other union centres around the world. And so it was carried that the ILO will send a high-level fact-finding mission to the Philippines and, and in fact, the advanced party of union people will be arriving next week. We've got uh, a situation just on the ILO, which is is, uh, unusual. The last time ILO sent such a mission to the Philippines was in 2007. That one back then was nobbled. In the end, its report was pretty um, bland. But uh, this time, uh, I think we've got um, an international union movement even more mobilised to push for a genuine, um, you know, truthful outcome of the process. And we know that uh, President Duterte, in general, threatens to arrest anyone who, who lands in the country to do one of these kinds of investigations. So there's a bit of uh, process to go through to see just how dramatic that mission will be. And then United Nations Human Rights Council is meeting this week. It's got a resolution in front of it put to it by 11 
special rapporteurs or human rights experts of the, in, within the UN system expressing extreme concern about what's going on in the Philippines and, and calling for a uh, fact-finding mission from the Human Rights Council. The Philippines is on the Human Rights Council. There's 47 UN member states on that council and Australia is also one of them. We've, we've been lobbying our government to make sure they vote in favour of this fact-finding mission. If that happens, that will be even more unusual than the ILO mission. So we've got two very high-level uh, international pressure points coming in on the Duterte government over human rights. Again, Duterte may decide to uh, block the uh, Human Rights Council if it decides to go ahead. If he does, that will be, again, another flashpoint for international action and concern. So I think that, you know, we've, we've actually got some pretty powerful tools to use, even at that high level of diplomacy um, and international politics. And, of course, at, at our community level, we've all got voices and we've all got politicians. Um, so we, we can, I feel like the... Uh, International Coalition for Human Rights in the Philippines will grow as an organisational framework in this time and um, you know, we, we will be able to apply more resources to the campaigning. I'm sort of uh, you know, so anxious for my friends in the Philippines. Even, even while we met, there were, I think, five people killed. You know, it, it's a very stressful and uh, difficult thing to work with, but... Uh, you know, we, we've got a lot to do and, and we've got some, some tools to use to, to get change. So keen to, to see, see this little period through and um, hopefully we will find that uh, we can isolate Duterte in a significant way a few months in front of us. Well, we need to get the Australian troops out of the Philippines, don't we, who are supporting him? Yes, we've got the... You know, levels of problem with the Australian relationship with the Philippines, but I think having you know, tried to lobby the um, the minister and uh, the Department of Foreign Affairs, that uh, they themselves can uh, do two things. You know, they can find the words and uh, the actions to say that they stand on the side of human rights, but at the same time they would they would continue to arm and uh, finance the military and the police who who are the the main tools of repression. That's just another level. But I think uh, Duterte himself is in a very volatile situation, probably a very um, fragile situation. A lot can change. When I was uh, there in uh, Hong Kong at the meeting, a guy who's my age, a teacher at, the univers at a university in the Philippines, he, he said uh, that... Uh, one of his classmates, who was a member of a cabinet of one of the governments of this last 20 years, three months ago got a phone call from a, a general. The general said, would you be willing to join a junta, be a cabinet member of a military government? The guy said no and hung up. <laughs> but uh, you can see that uh, in the military, there's uh, uh, their own assessment that Duterte is a problem, not because of you know, the reason we object to him so much, but um, that he's a problem. I would say that reflects a view within the US intelligence group that Duterte is a problem. The paranoid behaviour and, and strange behaviour of Duterte sometimes uh, actually is, is founded in, the, in, the, in these facts that he's, his erratic behaviour, embarrassing behaviour, perhaps uh, 
unwillingness to hold a consistent line is just not comfortable for the Americans and, and they're very much uh, consolidated their, their control over the, the military in the Philippines for a long time. So the general is expressing, I think, an American view of the situation. So they're looking for a way to get past Duterte. You know, if he's replaced, it would be, uh, in this scenario, it would be a military government. That would be its own set of problems for even for the Americans. So the, the vice president, constitutional terms, is a woman called Rebredo. She's you know on the outer in terms of the Duterte-Marcos-type block, but she would be completely acceptable to the United States. That's probably what they... They would really prefer a return to some kind of stable, in, in Filipino terms, stable civilian rule that's recognisably constitutional. So in the meantime, we wait for the two groups of people to, be, to go to the Philippines and actually be allowed to do their work. Yeah, I think that that's uh, there's clearly a protest to be made about every case where uh, farmer leaders and others are being shot down. We'll do that work. But... Uh, I think that the bigger uh, opportunity right now is really, really important global institutions trying to take a stand on what Duterte's uh, government is doing and um, we can really amplify that action and uh, if necessary we can apply political pressure to assist them to get their work done. And that's trade union and human rights activist Peter Murphy just back from a couple of conferences in Hong Kong and having a look round the demonstrations that are happening there. Hello, I am Gabriel Gatte. 3CR is like a souffle, a challenge to make, but it can just go higher and higher and higher. Support 3CR. In a few weeks' time, it's the annual Pacific Islands Forum, and I'm joined now by Nick McClellan, journalist and researcher, and there's going to be a few new faces there for this year's meeting, Nick. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting forum because uh, each year presidents and prime ministers from around the region come together, both for a formal meeting and what they call their retreat, where the leaders just go into the room themselves to talk frankly amongst each other uh, without officials in the room and so that one-on-one connection makes it quite an interesting discussion and this year um, there'll be new faces there PNG's just had a change of leadership with Prime Minister Peter O'Neill stepping down and his former finance minister James Marape coming into the the space Uh, it'll be Marape's first uh, forum and so that'll be interesting given PNG's weight as the largest of the island's nations um, new president in uh, New Caledonia after the May elections. Uh, Thierry Santa, a conservative anti-independence leader, has taken over the presidency. His first time on the regional stage, so people will be trying to get a sense of where he's coming from uh, as a, an anti-independence leader in a country that's got a very strong independence movement. Changes in the Solomons uh, earlier this year with elections, uh, but it's an old face uh, reappearing, Manasseh Sogavare. Rick Hole, the previous Prime Minister, was very close to Australia, um, and Sogavari has been uh, you know, a long-term uh, jouster with the uh, people in Canberra, 
people with long memories may remember the Moti affair where uh, Sogabari appointed a guy called Julian Moti as his attorney general who the Australians spent a lot of time and energy uh, trying to arrest. So Sogabari's had a love-hate relationship with Canberra, currently in love after Scott Morrison was there recently, but uh, Sogabari, a very strong Puritan character, quite capable of standing his ground uh, with uh, Australia and New Zealand. Jacinda Ardern, she was at last year's forum, but uh, uh, once again a pretty new face in the Pacific networks, given someone like Tui Laepa of Samoa has been at the forum for the last 20 years. These are new kids on the block, and it'll be very interesting to see the dynamics. And, of course, Scott Morrison's first forum. He didn't go last year, soon after the elections. Maurice Payne represented Australia at the uh, uh, Nauru Forum. Scott Morrison's appointed a new Minister for International Development and the Pacific, a guy called Alex Hawke, who's his... New South Wales number man from the right of the New South Wales uh, Liberal Party, and uh, Hawke's also Assistant Minister for Defence, uh, very much showing that Australia's engagement with the region is focused through that defence and security prism. It'll be an interesting meeting. And Fiji's representative? The big picture, of course, is that Frank Bainimarama will be coming to his first forum as a leader. In uh, 2006, uh, people will remember that Commodore, then Commodore Bainimarama, had a coup d'etat against the government led by Lysinian Garase. 2009 coup regime abrogated Fiji's constitution um, and started ruling by decree. And at that point, Fiji was suspended from the forum and from the Commonwealth, uh, not kicked out, but certainly uh, unable to participate in forum activities. And, of course, Fiji used that opportunity to broaden its international networks joining the non-aligned movement, being very active through the G77, the group of 77 developing countries within the United Nations, and so on. And uh, since the elections held in 2014, and then again last year, uh, Bani Marama has been returned to power as an elected politician. After the 2014 elections, Fiji started re-engaging with the forum and has sent ministers, either their foreign affairs minister or trade minister, has come to the forum in recent years and participated in all other official-level, ministerial-level activities of the forum. But Baini Marama personally has snubbed the forum up until now. And it's very interesting that he's coming to this year's forum in Tuvalu simply because Baini Marama has really picked up the challenge of climate change uh, in a way that's quite surprising for a former military guy and really linking the questions of climate change and security, climate change and development, climate change and human rights... And so to have Baini Marama in the room, in the retreat for the first time, together with host Ineli Sopoanga, the Prime Minister of Tuvalu, that's a combination that's really going to stand ground on climate policy. And that's a significant challenge for the Australian Government and for Scott Morrison. When you look at other countries or other areas of the world, though, there's not many women there, are there? Well, there aren't many women in uh, some Pacific governments, um, uh, in Papua New Guinea, for example, there are no women in the recent elections in the 112-member parliament. There's a real gap, particularly in Melanesia. But there are women at leadership positions around the region, and it was interesting last year for the first time, by accident as much as design, you had four women in the room. It was unprecedented. Not only Jacinda Ardern as Prime Minister of New Zealand, but also uh, Hilda Heine, who's president of the Marshall Islands, the first woman to be president of... Um, the Marshall Islands. Uh, last year also Maurice Payne was in the room uh, representing Scott Morrison and the uh, 
Palauan president, Tommy Remengasau, couldn't come, so he sent his uh, deputy, uh, once again a woman. So women are stepping up into that public sphere, and it's changed the dynamic a bit. Um, you know, the retreat was always a, an old boys club, often people who'd known each other a long time and worked together. You know, in the days of Michael Samari, Sakamasi Ratu Sakamasi of Fiji, Tui Laapa of Samoa, these are people who've been together, worked together across the region for many decades. Um, there's a real change in dynamism in um, the politics, including the, the French colonies, uh, New Caledonia, French Polynesia as members, uh, with women taking leadership roles in some countries. It's a changing network, and that's where um, you know some, some interesting decisions may come out of this. There are issues that unite them, um, and with one exception, climate change is, is that issue, uh, but there are certainly other issues that divide the Pacific, and so it's quite an interesting uh, dynamic to attend these meetings. And, of course, with two independence issues on the books. New Caledonia particularly. Um, uh, we've talked on this program before about New Caledonia's uh, long-running campaign by the Kanak people for independence. Um, in November last year, 4th of November, there was a referendum on self-determination, Predictions by academics, by the media, by pollsters were that there'd be a strategic defeat for the FLNKS, the Kanak Socialist National Liberation Front. Polling was suggesting they'd get between 15 to 30-odd percent um, in the referendum in support of independence. In fact, the final result was 43.3 percent in favour of independence. It was a shock for pretty much everyone except the independence movement. Uh, um, it was a, certainly a shock for the opposition conservative parties and the independence parties who thought that they were going to give a hammer blow to the dream of independence. In fact, it's the other way round. It certainly wasn't a win. You know, 56% of people voted to stay with France. But 43% is close enough to 50 to give everyone a shock and realise that this process will continue. The Namir Accord, the agreement for... Uh, uh, New Caledonia has provisions for up to three referenda. If people say no in the first one, there's a possibility of holding another referendum uh, next year in 2020. And so the independence movement is just forging ahead, getting ready for that. Um, at recent elections, they held their ground, in fact increased their representation by one seat in the National Congress. current Speaker of the Congress is an independence leader, a guy called Roque Wamiton, which is unprecedented in recent years. Um, so there's a real momentum there for the independence movement that will be interesting to see. The issue of self-determination is also on the agenda because Bougainville is moving towards its referendum on self-determination in October this year. In 2005, the autonomous government of Bougainville was elected under President John Momus and they've been moving towards a decision on the political future. It's different structure to what happened in New Caledonia. If the people of Bougainville vote yes, as is likely in October, the decision is taken, however, by the PNG Parliament. Under Peter O'Neill, it was clear that the ruling government would be campaigning against independence, would vote against independence for Bougainville creating somewhat of a constitutional crisis. James Marape was a member of that government, but now as Prime Minister, he's been handed the ball to deal with uh, a significant question um, if one of the largest well-off provinces of Papua New Guinea wants to secede as a separate country. Um, what's that going to mean? And, of course, we have the West Papua independence struggle bubbling away as well. 
independence movement in French Polynesia and so on. So this issue about statehood, about sovereignty, about self-determination is, is on the agenda, not on Canberra's agenda. They don't want to talk about it, although they're watching very closely what's happening in Bougainville and, of course, uh, resourcing you know, the process. And influencing it? I believe so. It's strategically very important for Australia. You know, obviously we were the former colonial power in Papua New Guinea, um, at the time of the uh, the conflict in Bougainville in the 1990s, uh, between 1989 and 1998, uh, tens of thousands of people died in the conflict, and Australia was very much backing the Papua New Guinea Defence Force, uh, the PNG government, against the Bougainville Revolutionary Army and other pro-independence forces. Australia provided patrol boats, uh, logistics, uh, helicopters to the Papua New Guinea Defence Force and those were reallocated from their supposed maritime surveillance jobs to actual fighting. The Australian supplied patrol boats were used to shoot up coastal villages patrolling the waters between Bougainville and Solomon Island to stop uh, Solomon Islanders and Bougainvillians running medical supplies and other support across the very narrow strait between the islands of Bougainville and the western Solomon Islands. And people have long memories. Absolutely. I mean, Australia's not seen as a neutral player. You know, Australia's forgotten that. I was at a conference in Canberra recently and people were talking about how everyone loves our patrol boats um, because uh, they're very useful for maritime surveillance for uh, patrolling the vast exclusive economic zones. And Australia has a $2 billion maritime security program where we're providing Royal Australian Navy personnel and patrol boats to help with maritime surveillance. Most Pacific Islanders are really supportive of that. But there are some people in Bougainville and beyond who remember that the technology that we provided to the PNG Defence Force was used for malign purposes. And it sort of dropped into the memory hole in Australia, but it hasn't when nearly 20,000 people died in Bougainville. At last year's forum, uh, the leaders came and signed a declaration called the Boy Declaration, and it was uh, updating a previous security statement for the region, first signed in 2000, and the Boy Declaration covers the full spectrum of issues about uh, state security, about transnational issues like uh, illegal, uh, unregulated fishing, about drug smuggling and other security concerns. But it also, for the first time in a forum statement, really emphasises human security issues, development issues, personal security issues about violence against women, and most importantly, and it's a very clear statement, which says, and I quote, that climate change is the single greatest threat to the livelihoods, well-being and future of Pacific peoples. Now, Australia half-heartedly signed off on that agreement, It's a real challenge. Will the Australian government, under Scott Morrison, recently re-elected, provide resources, technical assistance, support, political support, diplomatic support, across the full spectrum of security issues to the broader human security questions, and most importantly, climate change as an existential security threat to not only the small island states, but to us as Australians? And the obvious answer is, of course, that they won't. Government doesn't have a clear climate policy related to the Pacific Islands, and indeed the policies that it is advancing are a major threat. And that's going to be clearly a, a central discussion at this year's forum, particularly with someone like Anneli Sopoanga from Tuvalu. It's a low-lying atoll nation, just nine atolls across a, a, a vast area, 11,000 people, and Sopoanga has already been scathing about the opening up of the Galilee Basin. 
He says it's not just that you've got weak emissions targets now. It's not just that the government is refusing to give money to the Green Climate Fund, the global mechanism that helps with mitigation and adaptation needs in the developing world. It's not just that the Prime Minister carried a lump of coal into Parliament to taunt people who were concerned about this issue. It's that you're opening up one of the biggest thermal coal regions in the Southern Hemisphere. And for the Pacific, that's a real, real slap in the face. Scott Morrison's going to have to come with a big smile on his face and something more than empty hands to try and calm that. But I don't think he'll be able to. You know, in the past, Pacific leaders, because the forum works on a consensus basis, uh, the forum has sort of rolled with the punches, recognising that on certain topics, Australia, New Zealand, sometimes PNG, sometimes Fiji, will pull their weight, and you just have to learn to live with it. When an elephant's sitting beside you, you move over. You know, on Bougainville, for example, there are obvious sensitivities for Papua New Guinea, you know, about this, and and so the forum's never really touched Bougainville as a human rights issue, let alone a self-determination issue that's coming, though, down the track. But uh, on climate, this is an issue that Pacific leaders won't compromise. And I think with Baini Marama, I've applied for media accreditation to the forum this year, and my prediction is that if I get there, um, we'll be sitting for hours waiting for the retreat to finish. Because Baini Marama, Sopoanga, Hilda Haini, Samoa's Prime Minister Tui Lapa, and many others will not roll over on this issue. They'll be wanting to get a very strong declaration out of the Tuvalu meeting um, to tell the international community before they go to the next round of global negotiations. This is what the Pacific thinks. And that's a significant challenge for the Australian government because our climate policies are in fact heading in a different direction to those of our nearest neighbours. And in the last couple of years, we've seen Pacific leaders become more outspoken about this particular issue. But in the last two years, we've had a series of Pacific leaders come to give speeches in Australia at universities, at the Lowy Institute, at other places, and slap Australia in the face about climate change. You know, Hilda Heine came to, to the Prime Minister, uh, sorry, the President of the Marshall Islands, came to Canberra and said, now's not the time to trash the science. Now's not the time to open up coal mines. Tui Laapa came to Sydney on his way through last year and said... Um, you know, that the, the people who don't address this question, it's a sign of madness. The most striking thing I've, I've heard from a Pacific leader in recent times was former Ambassador Colin Beck of the Solomon Islands. Colin Beck was Solomon's UN ambassador for 15 years, very experienced regional and national diplomat. And as a diplomat at that sort of level, knows the power of words. He's now the you know, head of the Foreign Affairs Ministry in the Solomon Islands. And he was a key figure in organising Scott Morrison's recent visit to the Solomons, which on the surface was very successful. You know, people may have seen the pictures of him doing the high fives with school kids and all this sort of stuff. Uh, Very popular, you know, both sides saying, wonderful visit, great, you know, we're friends, we're, you know, family and all this sort of stuff. Colin Beck, the week after that visit, came to Canberra and gave a speech at a a seminar, which I was at in, in, in Canberra, was asked what are the key issues. And he talked for half an hour as the keynote speech didn't mention China once, or made a passing reference to China, didn't say that China was the issue, talked about a whole range of development issues and so on. But he started to talk about climate change, and he said, Paris is almost dead, unless countries you know, up their ambition, the Paris Accord, the Paris Agreement, is, is in trouble. It's going to die because we're heading towards three degrees of warming. And that's death for us. You know, it's genocidal 
if developed countries don't act. So if you don't have more urgent, more ambitious, I'm paraphrasing, but this was the, the guts of his message, this is genocidal. And a week after he'd hosted the Australian Prime Minister in a family visit, you know, um, which on the surface was a great victory for Canberra's Pacific step-up diplomacy, to come to Canberra and say, your climate policies look to us like they're genocidal. That's called diplomacy. That's called sending a message that if the Australian government thinks it can just step up into the region with its security policies without addressing the fundamental issue facing the security and well-being and livelihoods of the peoples of the Pacific, then you've got rocks in your head. And the Australian media is promoting this as Australia stopping the Chinese. Well, okay, let's see. Let's see. Um, I think you've got a way to go to persuade Prime Minister Bainimarama, Prime Minister Sopwanga, and many other Pacific leaders that the step up is more than just looking after Australia's security, Australia's defence interests, not the region's. Finally, Nick, it looks as though Mr Morrison's going to have to keep that smile on his face when he's over there. It's interesting. You know, in some ways, Morrison meshes in well with the Pacific, and you've sort of seen it superficially with his his engagement with the Pacific. A Pentecostal uh, believer in uh, Christianity, he meshes in, in some ways, with the religiosity of Pacific Island communities. His mad love of rugby uh, is uh, a talking point with neighbours you know, across the region, uh, some of whom are more rugby mad than he is. In some ways, I think Scott Morrison personally is going to fit in quite well compared to, say, Turnbull or other leaders, Warren Truss, who was like a fish out of water at previous forums when Tony Abbott sent him to a forum. The structural problems, though, are there for Australia and all the charm and personal diplomacy that Morrison, I think, will do quite well at in the Pacific doesn't solve these underlying problems. Number one, climate policy. Don't always agree with the Labor Party, but Penny Wong said you can't have a Pacific policy unless you've got a climate policy, and Australia doesn't have one. Well, it does, uh, but that's ripping up as much coal as you can before the stranded assets get dumped because everyone else in the world's got carbon taxes and policies and so on. The second structural question is, where's the money coming from for all of this? You know, we've set up a new $2 billion infrastructure fund to compete with the, the Belt and Road Initiative that the Chinese are, are providing infrastructure funds through the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, through state-owned enterprises and private corporations. Now, the Chinese have got pretty deep pockets, um, so we're going to have to keep topping up our infrastructure facility to keep competing with Belt and Road. This is a long-term question for the, for the region. At the moment, some of it's being drawn from the aid budget, but the aid budget is at the lowest level ever and it's due to drop so I predict that in fact the government will announce an aid increase before this year's forum token one but just to show that they're really you know, going to do more where's the money coming from and that's related to climate finance as well one of the big topics at the 2020 summit of the global climate negotiations is this question of um, the commitment towards a hundred billion dollars a year of public and private funds for climate mitigation and adaptation, for reducing emissions and for adapting to the adverse effects of climate change. The developed world pledged in writing through the Paris Accord that they would provide $100 billion a year by 2020. Now, we're not going to get to that target at the moment unless countries stump up more. And Australia hasn't really increased substantially its climate finance since the Gillard years, since 2009. So over the last decade... 
you know, we dropped under Tony Abbott, who didn't even believe climate change existed. Julie Bishop won back a bit of ground on that. But here we are ripping up coal, and we won't meet our international climate obligations. Different people give different amounts, but we either need a five-fold increase, some say a three-fold increase. So let's take the more conservative figure. We need a three-fold increase in our climate finance by next year. That's not going to happen. So Australia is going to be exposed on the international scene as the laggard that it is. And so Bainimarama and Sopoanga in Tuvalu next month aren't going to let good smiles and rugby chat from Scott Morrison undercut that central problem. We've had a lost decade or two on climate policy. We've run down the aid budget to the lowest level ever since 1974, since people started recording. These sort of structural problems can't be solved by happy chats. And thanks once again to journalist and researcher Nick McClellan. And it's 14 minutes past 5 o'clock here at 3CR. A two-day workshop boycotted by the Palestinian leadership took place amidst efforts by Washington to drum up $50 billion in investment. The so-called Peace to Prosperity workshop took place in Bahrain, which has been described as the economic part of President Trump's deal of the century, his proposal for solving the Israel-Palestine conflict. I'm speaking with Bishop George Browning, who's the president of APAN, Australian-Palestine Advocacy Network. George, you've looked through the workshops that were held those, those two days in Bahrain last week, opened by Krishna saying that an agreement on an economic pathway forward was a necessary precondition for Israel-Palestine peace. One comment I read, if it wasn't so serious, it would be laughable. A 40-page document void of any political content of any mention of the words occupation, freedom, equality and blockade. What's your assessment of what I would call a charade? <laughs> Jan, sadly those words are, are too true. It would be laughable if it wasn't so serious. Common sense makes it obvious that you can't deliver an economic outcome without having the political parameters described. For example, one of the so-called uh, infrastructure plans with the, with the $50 billion is to build uh, some kind of a highway between Gaza and the West Bank. Well, how on earth is that going to be achieved without a political agreement? It just it simply isn't possible. And it seems clear that really this is just another example of the one-track mind that Trump has. That is to say, everything is solved with money. There's only one deal to be had. That deal is money. It's nothing to do with social outcomes or political outcomes or, or even keeping with the um, principles of international law. It's simply everything with Trump and his, uh, and his group. It has to do with money. And it is just it's either very hilarious or it's terribly sad. It's probably both. And then, of course, his mates are the, the shakes, whatever, in the oil kingdoms of the Middle East, not actually uh, democratic countries, any one of them. No, they're not. And, uh, I mean, underneath, underneath all of this, you've probably been reading or your listeners might have been hearing, it really is another agenda altogether, and it's an agenda of 
Benjamin Netanyahu and Donald Trump to align as many people as they can against Iran. And um, so the people gathering in Bahrain are people who, for whatever reason, are wanting to de demonize Iran and to give greater credibility to Saudi Arabia, really. Just explain where this $50 billion was going to go to, or is going well, to. Well, yes. Number one, where's the $50 billion coming from? Clearly, America doesn't intend to put it in, it, in itself. In fact, uh, there's no indication that America is going to put in any of that money. Donald Trump doesn't like spending his money on anything other than himself. And he was hoping, I think, to collect the money from so-called rich, wealthy Arab countries, particularly um, the UAE, presumably. Of, of that $50 billion, apparently it is intended that only half of the $50 billion be spent in Gaza and the West Bank, the other, the other $25 billion to be spent in Egypt, Jordan and Lebanon. Jordan and Lebanon because they are the places where most of the refugees Palestinian refugees live, and Egypt, presumably because the intention is that some, ha some form of accommodation, both uh, residential and work, be provided for Gaza people in, in the Sinai. But all of this, presumably, is intended to mean that those who live in Jordan, those, and particularly those who live in Lebanon, then become permanent residents of those countries, and up till now, uh, Lebanon in particular has uh, shown no indication that it wishes any of its refugees to remain permanent citizens of that country. And <laughs> without a political solution to that, uh, then this is just hot air, really. And this is the same US government that's cut funding for the UN for Palestinians. Well, it has, yes. And, uh, Jan, it, it, just, it, it is almost unbelievable that um, we're in the situation that we're in. Uh, in the... Our own Prime Minister has come back from the G20 conference saying that, um, that we, Australia supports America in forcing uh, Iran to the table. Well, Iran's been at the table, and America was the one who came away from the table, who scrapped the agreement with Iran that they would um, limit their, uh, their nuclear ambitions and... Um, they've maintained their commitment. America is the one that's pulled away. And so America, Trump, uh, Kushner, do their best to convey a narrative which is, which is completely, uh, has no reality or connection with the facts. Just wondering how much credence this two-day workshop got in Europe and the US. Well, very little. Uh, as far as I can see, nobody has taken it at all seriously. Um, I, I've been talking in the last few days to some um, retired ambassadors, Australian ambassadors to Israel, and they, they have said that it, the whole thing is just laughable within the diplomatic community, both domestically and also um, internationally. I've read that these former diplomats have written to the PM calling him not to support the plan. Well, yeah. how, could, how could Australia support it anyway? It's nothing to do with us, is it? Well, 
the, Jen, that's absolutely correct. But um, Australia has a, this very embarrassing record of wanting to support Israel and um, and America in a whole lot of things that have got nothing to do with us. But we do it blindly because of our belief that we need to, because of the alliance we have with with America. But as you and your listeners know, the support that we give is almost puts us in isolation with the rest of the international community. No other Western country gives that kind of support. How long is it since you've been to Palestine, or how long ago was it, George? Uh, I've been twice relatively recently. I went uh, late last year, in December last year, and I was there very briefly, uh, early April. And what did you find in April that had changed since your visit in December? in April, for the, first, for the first time, I actually spent some time with Palestinians in Israel itself. I've, I've normally always only ever been on the, in the West Bank or East Jerusalem. And um, on this occasion, I was in uh, communities in the northern, northern Israel around Haifa and Accra. And um, what came clear to me is that ultimately the problem faced by the Palestinians on the West Bank and Gaza and the problems faced by the Palestinians who live in Israel, 20% of the Israeli population, is really the same problem. And uh, we ought to somehow or another try to galvanize the, um, the assistance of Palestinians who live within Israel in support of the Palestinians who live on the West Bank. I, I think... I, I, in my head, I've always thought of them as two different entities, but I think really it's increasingly becoming the same entity, particularly as Israel clearly intends to annex the vast majority of the West Bank with the support of the United Nations. With, with, sorry, not with the support of the United Nations, with the support of the U.S. Uh, your listeners probably know that since the Oslo Agreement of the 1990s, the West Bank is divided into areas A, B, and C, and Area A is totally under the control of the Palestinian Authority. It's largely the cities of Nablus and Ramallah and, and uh, Hebron and uh, Janine, etc. Area B is, uh, is a, a grey a area sort of reaching out from those cities, and Area C is the vast majority of the West Bank. It's, I think it's slightly over 60% of the West Bank. It's the, it's the least populated area, includes the Galilee. And uh, in this area, the Palestinians are refused any right to build or to develop their vineyards or anything at all. And increasingly, uh, the, the, the Palestinian population is being denuded in the 60%, so that uh, clearly Israel intends to annex all of that. And this agreement with um, so-called agreements in Bahrain is really in support of that move so that Palestinians ultimately will simply be, be left with uh, little uh, separated areas of population around the major cities. That's become clearer to me that Israel has no intention whatsoever of, of allowing a genuine Palestinian state or two-state solution. Hasn't for a long time. But this is now becoming, they don't even have any pretense about it anymore, I don't think. And then that sort of reinforces the position of Hamas or others that say we don't support the State of Israel because there is no State of Israel because they keep on expanding and taking other people's land. Well, that's right. Uh, Israel says 
we, we can't recognize the state of Palestine because you can't recognize a state without boundaries. Well, Israel itself doesn't have boundaries because it continually changes them. And um, the, the internationally recognized boundary is the boundary of, 19, of 1967. And uh, up till now, any uh, peaceful, just solution has been based upon an assumption of those boundaries, and which includes East Jerusalem in Palestine, and um, and it means that the uh, the settlements would either have to be would have to be a, a land swap, or there would have to be uh, an absorption of those settlements into Palestine. But that's now obviously, or it hasn't been for some time, uh, a view accepted by the um, Netanyahu administration. Could you talk for a few more minutes about the Palestinians living in the state of Israel? Mm. Now it's been deemed a Jewish state. How are they yes, getting on? Well, well, what's really happened more recently, and I think your listeners, because you keep them pretty well informed, are, are aware, is that in 2018, the um, Israeli government passed a state law which states that, that is to be a full citizen in Israel you have to be a Jew. Israel is for Jews. So the 20% of the population in Israel that is Palestinian is really denied the fullness of citizenship that normally goes with belonging to a country. I mean, in, in Australia, uh, a refugee who becomes a citizen in, in the Citizens in Air Ceremonies on Australia Day or whatever else automatically become a full member of the Australian community in every respect. And in Israel, there are something like 60 rules or restrictions placed upon non-Jews who live in Israel. And then we have to think about the the millions of refugees or the hundreds of thousands of refugees languishing in camps in those neighbouring countries who have, many of them have no rights. I think they do have some rights in Jordan, but in Lebanon... They, they don't have any no. rights, nor, nor do the Syrian refugees. Yes, in, so you have to go Lebanon. back to where? Yeah. How can you well, go back? But, Jan, that's presumably partly what this um, financial deal is about. Presumably the $25 billion that will be spent on Egypt, Jordan and um, Lebanon would be conditional on those countries, I presume, accepting the refugees as permanent citizens. Well, who's to say they're going to do that? And, and who's to say that the, the Palestinians or the Syrians come to that would want to be permanent citizens? Why wouldn't they want to go back to their own country? Is there a figure of how many Palestinians actually in those camps now in the neighbouring countries? There is a figure. I don't have it off the top of my head. I'm, I'm sorry, Jan. It remains in the hundreds of thousands in each place, more in Jordan than Lebanon. You're correct to say that the situation in Lebanon is far more difficult than Jordan. In Jordan, Palestinians not only are able to work, they're encouraged to work because they, the Palestinians actually are a very significant part of the uh, Jordanian economy. But in Lebanon, they're not. They're not allowed to work, they're not allowed to build, they're not allowed to have education, they're not, not, not allowed to, have, to, be, to access health care. They can't legally access electricity even in the camps. Well, they do that illegally, as, as you've probably seen in different parts of the world, but refugees have these very dangerous wires connected to overheads and so on, illegally. And these refugees in Lebanon are part of that UN 
money that the, that, um, the US cut off That's for refugees. Yes, so yes. life there is even more precarious for them now. Well, absolutely. And the, the short-sightedness of it is, can be demonstrated in many, many, many ways. The most obvious being that if you reduce people to absolute um, hopelessness, then uh, almost automatically you, you radicalise people. If, 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 if there is no hope at all, then uh, people will tend to want to take things into their own hands in a, in a way that is antisocial, violent and, and dangerous. And so by reducing the, the help to people, uh, reasonable help to people who are refused access to normal uh, opportunities is to is to cause more people to become radicalised and uh, uh, this is well documented and America is um, uh, is utterly foolish to be going down this track um, and with education the UN money provides reasonable educational facilities as much as possible for refugees take that away and the gap then is filled by uh, the, um, the radical Islamic schools. What's the role now for APAN in a situation like this? Well, um, that's a good question, which I ask myself most days. Um, I think it's important for APAN and Palestinian supporters to remember, number one, that right is on the side of the Palestinians. We don't have to concoct a story. We don't, a bit like the Israeli lobby, we don't have to manufacture a reason why anybody who supports Palestinians are anti-Semitic. I mean, their, their, their desperation in, in trying to concoct a reason why their, why their cause is just um, becomes more and more extreme all the time. We need to remind ourselves that international law is on the side of the Palestinians, right is on the side of the Palestinians, history is on the side of the Palestinians. So we need to have that in our mind so that we do, do, do not lose hope or heart or passion or energy. Secondly, uh, the more people are informed, the more they realize that um, finding justice for the Palestinians is is in Israel's best interest because if you, if we keep people marginalised and um, and uh, unproductive, then that hurts everybody. And at the end of the day, it's my very strong belief that uh, a just outcome for for Palestinians is in the best interest of Israel itself. And more and more Jewish people are turning to that idea now. Who Th- might... they are. They are, and um, um, political extremism and religious extremism um, hopefully is, is less acceptable to a younger generation. Um, uh, older people tend to maintain prejudices and, and, uh, and views that have to do with this, things in the past, but the younger generation, uh, which is, has access to social media, etc., etc., um, tends to think, well, why can't we live in a normalised world? And uh, the more young Jews and young Palestinians see that way, the more hope we can have. And the APAN tours that are conducted each year, they're an important 
educational tool too. They, they are, Jan, yes, they are. Uh, almost, no, everybody who goes there who sees it for themselves, um, they, they don't need to be talked into anything. They, it is pretty obvious that a, a huge injustice is being perpetrated and, um, and that speaks for itself. So the more people that can go, um, but, uh, but it's expensive um, and for APAN to to find uh, close to, I don't know, $70,000, $80,000 to take a tour is, is hard work, really. Okay, George, well, thank you again for that. Oh, it's a pleasure, Jan. Thank you for calling. And that's Bishop George Browning, who's the president of APAN, Australian Palestine Advocacy Network. Have a look at their webpage. There's a lot of information there about Palestine. And it's... Five, come out to 5.34 and this is, of course, your community radio station in Melbourne, 3CR. It will be worth the effort to get to Darwin from the 2nd to the 4th of August for the Independent and Peaceful Australia Network's National Conference. Australia at the Crossroads. Time for an independent foreign policy. Held under the ominous shadow of US-China contention and US-Australia military exercises for war on China, discussion and speakers will address the social and economic cost of militarism to Australia, the impact of militarism on the environment and the dangers posed to our peace and security by stationing US troops in Darwin. For more details, head to the Independent and Peaceful Australia Network's website at ipan.org.au. IPAN is a 3CR supporter. The US administration repeated recently that the US sanctions are not impacting on the people of Iran, only on those in power. One person who has witnessed the impact of economic war is Kathy Kelly, previously with the group Voices in the Wilderness and more recently with Voices for Creative Nonviolence. Kathy, you've seen the results of, of sanctions over the years in Iraq. Couldn't you just describe what sanctions mean to people on the ground? Well, for the people who are the most vulnerable, Jan, the elderly, the sick, the poor, and children, sanctions can lead to the difference between life and death. Because if people need medicines or they need equipment in hospitals to be maintained or repaired or replaced, if they need to be able to import certain kinds of medicines or foods, and if they need to be able to use bank accounts that are compromised by the sanctions to buy vitally needed goods, eventually you'll, you'll find that people aren't able to survive. And in Iraq, where the most comprehensive economic sanctions ever imposed in modern history went on for 13 years, eventually the sewage and sanitation systems couldn't function. Electrical facilities couldn't function. And so the numbers of people sick and then dying rose consistently. And we're very fearful that this could happen in Iran, perhaps not in quite the same proportion as happened in Iraq, but already the doctors in hospitals are saying that they're not able to get what they need. They know what the procedures are, but they can't implement them. That comes from a 
top doctor in the Gandhi Hospital in Tehran. They can't implement them because of these sanctions. And, of course, the other side of sanctions surely is that aim to turn the people against the leaders of their own country because if we got rid of them, then the sanctions would be lifted. Well, I don't think it's ever proper to hold children accountable for who governs their country. And I also think that that's a very wrong-headed approach that the United States lays out because as people actually in government in Iraq asked us to understand, the sanctions actually support the dictatorship because people become so weary. They become so isolated. They become so unable to launch the kinds of resistance that would be necessary to topple a dictator that they they begin to, to kind of give in and cave in. We saw that happen in Iraq. You know, Saddam Hussein didn't necessarily miss a meal. And because of the economic sanctions, he was able to keep his people isolated from communication with others. I mean, in the many, many trips that voices made over to Iraq, we seldom saw any other Westerners. And, of course, once a war is over, the country takes so long to recover. Well, that is certainly true. In fact, in Iraq right now, some commentators say it's it's really a broken country. Uh, The Kurds have kind of peeled off and are doing sales of their own oil for their own aims and initiatives. The western part under former Sunni control is is just battered and and broken. The cities haven't been restored. And then you've got a kind of a rump southern part of the country that's very much aligned with Iraq. So there's a, a, a division and also a loss of so, so many people who were quickly fleeing Iraq during and after the bombing war, after all those years of economic sanctions, and others who were internally displaced and couldn't get back on their feet. You asked the question, why should the U.S. be punishing Iran? But I'd like you first to describe the map that you have on your page about the the Mm -hmm. bases that surround Iran. Well, it's very instructive because there are 45 United States military bases surrounding Iran. You can start up in Turkey, and there are U.S. bases there. And then trace along, and you've got the bases that the United States has set up in Iraq. You've got the bases in Saudi Arabia, in Kuwait, in the United Arab Emirates, in Oman, and then in Afghanistan, you know, we, we've got nine major United States military bases rent-free in Afghanistan, and two of those bases are immediately on the border that Afghanistan shares with Iran. So, you know, you can easily say that it's not Iran that's the aggressor. It's the United States that is the aggressor. And also... The United States has imposed crippling sanctions, not allowing Iran to sell its oil, and therefore if it can't export its major product that keeps its economy going, that economy will go closer and closer toward collapse. And then when you think about, you know, the whole, the the United States Navy's fifth fleet stationed in Bahrain, I mean, what if anything comparable were going on in relation to the United States borders? And then, of course, the United States can fly surveillance drones over Iran and uh, 
if the Iranians retaliate, the United States can then use that as another pretext to move toward war. And it could close the Straits of Hormuz very quickly if, if the U.S. continues like this. Well, this is, a, 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 of course, a big concern. And I think that the people in Iran and governance and other ministries in Iran would not be thinking even about closing down the Strait of Hormuz if they weren't under so much pressure because of United States aggression and economic sanctions. Now, how long would the Strait of Hormuz be closed down? You know, maybe a strategy the Iranians would use would be to deploy mines within the Strait, and then the United States would need to send in ships to conduct demining operations, and maybe those ships would be vulnerable to the antiquated missiles and delivery systems that the Iranians have. But it, it seems as though it, that would be a pretty desperate measure on the part of Iran. And I think it's also important to note the disparity in terms of what the United States military controls and what Iran has. The United States military has a $750 billion annual budget and actually probably higher when other expenditures are counted in. And the Iranians have a $15 billion defense budget. Iran has a huge stretch of coastline and borderline to try to defend if it gets into a war with a country like the United States. And it's also got 12 major cities and actually about a half dozen nuclear energy plants. So they'd have a lot to defend, and the Iranian Navy can't even get a ship out into the Atlantic. Their army is, uh, in terms of the other countries in the region, really a very small and under-equipped army. And, of course, the U.S. keeps on pushing the, the nuclear issue, and there's a d great double standards there alive, aren't there? Oh, it's terrible. I mean, uh, the International Atomic Energy Association, as late as May 31st, filed their quarterly report and said Iran is com in compliance. They are not in any way breaking any of the agreements to the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the so-called nuke deal. Now, that could change, but this is what the IAEA reported on May 31st. And, you know, when you think about Israel, they don't even acknowledge that they have the nuclear weapons that the CIA clarifies that they have, at least 45 thermonuclear weapons. And so they're never subject to investigation or oversight. It's just simply not brought up any time in the nuclear nonproliferation treaty conferences when a proposal was made for a nuclear nuclear weapon-free zone, the uh, United States, including President Obama in the past, said, no, 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 we, we can't go in that direction because that would mean that Israel in the region would also be subject to investigation and to the standards that are set by the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. And now we see a similar pattern developing in Saudi Arabia. Until recently when a United States House subcommittee for oversight, made a few demands, the Trump administration's negotiations with Saudi Arabia included seven permits for the Saudis to start to develop nuclear energy. And with no oversight, with no disclosures to the International Atomic Energy Association or the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. So this would be done very covertly. Now, it has become public knowledge that these seven permits have been granted 
Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, went on national TV and said, if Iran starts to acquire a nuclear weapon, we will acquire nuclear weaponry. So that was a pretty definite statement, again, with no involvement, no participation whatsoever in international treaties and standards of investigation and compliance. It seems as though the U.S. policy toward Israel and toward Saudi Arabia doesn't raise any of the concerns that the U.S. raises with regard to Iran, and yet Iran is in compliance with the International Atomic Energy Association, with the demands of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. What would it take to bring those talks back, the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty talks back into being? Well, I think that um, Iran had hoped that European countries would say, look, you know, we're not going to go along with these sanctions. The treaty was meant to give Iran an incentive by lifting sanctions, and instead the sanctions have gotten worse and the United States has walked away from the treaty. So I think they were hoping for more from European leaders, but um, I think the Trump administration has signaled to European leaders that they also could be affected by U.S. tariffs or U.S trade deals if they stand up to the United States. Well, that's the other thing that the U.S. keeps on talking about is that um, Iran supports terrorism. And that's the pot calling the kettle black, isn't it? Well, I think so. I mean, the aerial terrorism that the Saudis have engaged in in bombing Yemen into the point where it's become a country with the worst humanitarian crisis in the world, constant bombarding of Yemen using United States weapons. Just uh, on June 24th, uh, just last month, a ship departed from Wilmington, North Carolina, on the east coast of the United States, heading over to Saudi Arabia. And you can just look it up in the you know United States census accounts, which detail all of the exports going out of every different port in the United States. And going forth to Saudi Arabia were guns, bullets, bombs, parts, and uh, military defense-related aircraft. And there will be two more shipments this summer. One is expected on July 20th and another on August 20th. And that's just from one port. So the United States is enabling the Saudis uh, to be meddlesome. You know, the United States accuses Iran of being a meddling country, meddlesome. But the Saudis are making sure that the government of Sudan, the military strong-armed government that's killing nonviolent, unarmed protesters, 100 of them were killed last month in their demonstration called the Democratic Uprising. The Saudis are sending weapons to Sudan and encouraging the Sudanese military, hang in there, we will back you, and the United Arab Emirates as well. The United States has turned a blind eye to Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman's very reckless statements that the war in Yemen is in his country's favor, that a prolonged war is in their favor. And it was very distressing to see President Trump meet with Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman and say, he's a fantastic guy. And then they all posed at the G20 summit with Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman right there in the middle of the group, uh, not being chastised, not being questioned, uh, and in fact, right now, the United States and all of the uh, major weapon-making countries, including China and Russia, are working on what they call 
hypersonic weapons that can be delivered within minutes anywhere in the world. Very, very frightening weapons. And if the United States is going to tell Saudi Arabia, which already has ballistic missile delivery systems, that, you know, wink, wink, nod, nod, you can start moving in the direction of developing nuclear energy, which could then be transformed into nuclear weapons, then it really bodes very poorly for the survival of the planet. And when you talk about issues like this, these are the issues that Chelsea Manning and Julian Assange told the world about. Well, I think that they're the ones who have true security for the world in mind. Uh, The world will be so much more secure when the weapon makers are prohibited from continuing to profit enormously out of developing weapons that could massively destroy humanity and every other species and life on the planet. The G20, I don't think, um, are about the business of securing a better future for people throughout the world. I think they're about the business of securing a better future for high corporate war profiteers and for themselves as people who are in pretty comfortable situations. But, I mean, I look at my friends down in Kings Bay, Georgia, who are uh, like Assange and uh, Chelsea Manning considered criminal. And uh, I think they're the ones who actually are far more visionary and insightful about what could allow the planet to survive. What's the situation for Chelsea at the moment? Is she still in jail? Briefly released and then sent back, and she's um, not only being told that she has to stay in jail, but they're beginning to apply draconian fines that would uh, saddle her with debt, I I could imagine, for many, many years to come. Uh, A judge is talking about as much as $1,000 per day until she agrees to speak to the grand jury. Is this just to incriminate Julian Assange, or is there more to it than that? Well, I think it's also a deterrent to whistleblowers and an effort to silence her so that she won't continue to raise solidarity and, and, and genuine concern and resistance. But it certainly is, um, I'm sure, meant also to psychologically batter Julian Assange and his health is already suffering and, you know, the, the threats are constant. Uh, so uh, it's, 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 these are the actions, I think, of, of bullying people with, with no interest whatsoever in asking larger questions about the First Amendment rights of people in the United States for press freedom. Can we conclude, Kathy, talking about a man who was an anti-war activist for many years, Justin Raimondo, who recently died? Well, to me, he was somebody who throughout the last four decades consistently dedicated himself to telling the truth about wars. And uh, he was also a gay rights activist. He wrote very well and very, very often. I think the website antiwar.com said that he had filed 3,000 articles and I, I, I very much appreciated his activism and his energy uh, when, when voices had just begun to form out of uh, the 1991 Gulf Peace Team 
project. And, and antiwar.com as a website hadn't quite formed yet. We, we began to be aware of his name just because of the sheer energy and quality of the writing that he was doing. I, I, I felt so sad when I learned that he was suffering from cancer, and it was a long battle. But you can tell as his colleagues give their own eulogies and print eulogies that have come forth from others that he was a beloved colleague and companion. And is there a date set for your colleagues to go to trial about the demonstration April last year? Well, they they won't go to trial just yet, but there is an August 7th date for them to participate in oral arguments. And so this means that they'll all be in court in Brunswick, the seven defendants, including the three who have been in jail. My friend Steve Kelly, the Jesuit priest who's in prison, just uh, turned 71 in jail. And uh, Liz McAllister, the widow of Phil Berrigan, who her whole life has been dedicated to uh, ending wars and promoting peacemaking, uh, she also... Uh, and now in her 80s, uh, has been in jail for a solid year, in fact, uh, a year and uh, three months. And then uh, Mark Colville is in prison. He had um, bonded out um, for just a short time to take care of a basal cell carcinoma on his face, but he's back in jail. And the other four are wearing uh, ankle monitors, which are really like leg irons. And so the seven will be very pleased to reconvene And I think right now we've got 56 people planning to participate in a solidarity fast and vigil in Brunswick, Georgia, and also in front of the base on August 6th will begin the day that commemorates those who were murdered in Hiroshima and then continue to August 9th, uh, which is Nagasaki Day. And uh, we'll hold a vigil in front of the base on August 6th and August 9th and we'll be in front of the Brunswick Courthouse August 7th and 8th. And if anybody would like to join from afar, we'd certainly welcome participation. We'd love this to be an international gathering. And we think that the publicity is warranted because of the extreme danger that people are facing as the nuclear arms race grows, but also it's a way to uh, widen out the embrace of the international convention uh, against nuclear weapons, the ICANN group and the treaty. And uh, very good news has come that in New York City, legislation has been proposed which would prohibit anywhere within New York City the um, usage of funds or advertisements or promotion of any corporate entity or personal project that would promote nuclear weapons. It's wonderful legislation. We hope cities all around the world will start to embrace it. Yes, well, it's not long till the anniversary, is it? It's only one month of the bombings in Japan. Oh, yes, and and also um, July marks the anniversary of the International Coalition Against Nuclear War, having, um, through the United Nations, gotten the treaty accepted, and now it has to be ratified. And I think there are 23 countries that have ratified it so far, the United States and all of the nuclear weapon-possessing states have not done so. And shamefully, Australia is neither. Thank you, Kathy, once again. Oh, well, thank you. It's always so good to know of your awareness and your interest in these uh, developments, and we look forward to staying in touch. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye, then.
And that's Kathy Kelly from Voices for Creative Nonviolence. And you were a peace activist based in Chicago. Been at it for many, many, many years. It's coming up to three minutes to six o'clock. In a couple of minutes' time, we'll have Dumbo Law. So I'll give a couple of announcements and then we'll see what happens. 3CR are selling kefir, Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. (laughs) 